Hello everyone. Review of Systems is going on a brief spring hiatus. We'll be back in early June with more original programming. In the meantime, enjoy a few shows from the archives. Welcome to Review of Systems, your podcast at the intersection of primary care and public health. I'm Thomas Kim. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, welcome back. Audrey Provenzano is on vacation, and she has unwisely allowed me to wrest control of her airways while she's away. But don't worry, I'm here to bring you an exciting interview with Dr. David Buck. We're talking this week about super users, which describe people who far disproportionately consume healthcare services compared to their counterparts. They often have complex physical, behavioral, and social needs, uh, which are not well met through our existing fragmented healthcare system, and they often struggle with chronic disease, mental illness, substance abuse, social factors, and, and these all have a very complex interplay. So in our conversation, we cover a wide range of issues, and I really think there's something for everyone here. Whether you're a cost wonk interested in bending the healthcare cost curve, or a primary care doctor interested in motivational interviewing, or maybe a primary care researcher thinking about population health analytics. I'm particularly excited that he shared his thoughts on how trust and building trust, especially in the setting of a history of trauma, is foundational for good primary care and good care in general. Uh, I personally feel like it's an area where policymakers uh, often struggle to understand how to build systems that create and reinforce a trusting relationship between a provider and patient, and I'm excited that that Dr. Buck shares his thoughts on this. Before I introduce him, uh, a quick bit of housekeeping. If you like the show, don't forget that you can listen to previous episodes on rospod.org, and you should definitely subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Please share us with your friends, uh, your colleagues, your co-workers, your parents. Uh, please share us even with your pets. As a new show, we want to get the word out and we need your help. We're also on Twitter at ROS Podcast and on Facebook as Review of Systems. So without further ado, this week's guest is Dr. David Buck, a family physician and professor of family and community medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine. He's the founder and president of Patient Care Intervention Center, or PIECES, an organization that uses advanced population health methods to target superutilization of the healthcare system and then intervenes through intensive care coordination and case management. It's based in Houston, Texas, and recently opened a branch in Dallas, and they were recently featured on PBS NewsHour. Prior to Dr. Buck's work at PIECES, he founded Healthcare for the Homeless Houston, uh, HHH, which is now a federally qualified health center for over 7,000 homeless in Harris County, as well as the associated Houston Outreach Medicine Education and Social Services Clinic, or Homes Clinic, a student-managed clinic at HHH in conjunction with the Baylor College of Medicine and the University of Texas Health Science Center. He's a co-founder of the Houston-based physician advocacy group, Doctors for Change, and he also founded the Houston Galveston Albert Schweitzer Fellowship. Dr. Buck is a graduate of the Baylor College of Medicine and the University of Texas School of Public Health, as well as family medicine residency at the University of Rochester. Welcome, Dr. Buck. It's really great to have you on the program. Great to be here. So in, in broad strokes, Dr. Buck, how would you describe what Patient Care Intervention Center is trying to do? Well, we're doing two pieces. One piece is the data piece, where we provide a database and analytics that connects health data with social determinant data. And then the intervention team are kind of our laboratory, where we provide an intervention 
both high intensity care coordination in the field, trying to identify systematic barriers uh, like transportation. We can't get Medicaid transportation for clients that we were just discussing today, or they can't get certain medicines or treatment. Um, other systematic barriers related to insurance. Uh, the other piece is that we are designing care plans. How could we communicate care plans across systems so that we can understand pivot points that patients have, like a, a, a patient that uh, is a diabetic who really doesn't care about being in the ER except they're in the ER every other day, but they really want to get their child back from CPS. They lost their child because they couldn't take care of them because they were always in the ER. So that CPS is the pivot point. Yet it took a month to learn that that was the motivation that the patient had. And to be specific, you're, you're working with a, um, what's been known as the superutilizer population. Uh, so can you maybe help for those who may not be familiar with this terminology, um, what this population is like and what they're facing and why um, what, you're, what you're doing is helpful? Well, great. Great question. So if you look at healthcare, roughly $3.2 trillion is spent on healthcare in America. $1.6 trillion is consumed by 5% of the population, and that population are called super users. And those super users, although it's, it's not a, uh, a data-driven formulaic piece, uh, we have just by convenience had the definition be roughly 10 or more ER visits or uh, four or more hospitalizations. And they are called super users because, as an ironic term, because they use emergency room and hospital facilities uh, at a great rate. And the theory is, is if we move them from the emergency room where it's costly and it does not address the underlying care problems to primary care, so they develop a primary care home, we've been able to reduce that cost by about 80%. So it, it feels like um, you're treating going to the emergency room or going to the hospital as, as really a failure of the healthcare system and a failure of the system in general uh, and that a lot of the uh, care and support could happen outside of these costly places like the emergency room. Um, how do you end up finding these, these patients? How, do you, um, how are you alerted by the existence of, um, uh, of people like this in our, in our community? Well, multiple methods. One is EMS. Our county fire department runs, our, our city fire department runs our EMS service. So high uh, EMS runs are identified by the city and we uh, look up how many runs they've had and then compare them with hospitalizations. And if they have a high enough uh, hospitalization rate, then their cost to the community is great. There are really bimodal distribution of super users. One group is uh, younger, less physically ill, more behaviorally challenged, meaning uh, substance abuse are their major issues. And then that group shifts over time to become the second group, which is much sicker, older, 
and um, kind of burning out their behavioral challenges to some degree, but then physically quite impaired with hepatitis C, heart failure, liver failure, kidney failure. Can you um, delve a little bit more into how the behavioral aspect of uh, either um, mental health conditions or substance abuse uh, uh, interact or intersect with their uh, with their physical conditions or their medical um, medical conditions with chronic disease. I think it'd be helpful for the listener also to uh, understand a, a kind of a typical patient and the and the barriers and struggles that they face. Yes, I'd like to share with you a story because as doctors, that's what we often hear and connect to, and uh, a story uh, that that uh, comes to mind is of Mr. Kincaid, a, a formerly homeless man who went to the ER uh, 20, 30 times over a, a three-month period for a buttocks abscess. Each time he'd go to the ER, they'd drain the abscess, but fail to treat his underlying uncontrolled diabetes and severe depression. Without addressing those issues, the wound wouldn't heal, but his ticket for the emergency room is the wound but our systems are not incentivized to take care of the underlying problems. In fact, those are a barrier. Those are difficult for us to address. Often we'll prescribe a medicine that then they can't get filled. His emergency was addressed each time, but his infection would ultimately spread to the bone and could be life-threatening. To take care of Mr. Kincaid required addressing non-emergent chronic health problems outside of the function of the emergency room, but it is the heart and soul of primary care doctors. We saw him at a shelter clinic, and he came in for a meal and dropped by to discuss his abscess. We started treating his diabetes and learned he had a phobia of needles. He was also a patient of the mental health system, and we found he was being treated for depression, but found he actually had a delusion around the needles which made it so that the prescription he got each day he would go to the ER for insulin went unfilled because he saw his sister die of an overdose in front of him, and he would literally be a puddle on the floor sobbing when he saw a needle. So no one ever assessed this after more than three months, and once we started giving him a long injectable, long-term uh, injectable antipsychotic, he was able to give himself insulin and has had uh, one or two visits in the last two years. Can you share a little bit about why you feel like the U.S. healthcare system as it exists today really fails people who have complex social, medical, and, and behavioral health needs? Uh, what is it about um, the way we deliver care that makes it uh, so difficult for uh, this group of people? Well, I think the core of it is our system isn't built to take care of sick people. It's built to take care of people that can pay for procedures. So we're a procedure-driven business, an enterprise, and that enterprise is not aligned with measuring outcomes. So as we all know, the shift in America is happening where we're looking at outcomes like never before. Uh, in the past, we were just a volume-based uh, business. And now we're a more quality-based, or from the triple aim of health reform, we're looking at three different avenues of where improvement can occur. But this quality measure is brand new to us, and those qualities are not aligned. 
and my work with the homeless that continues has been frustrated by the very nature of nonprofits. Nonprofits, just like hospitals, are set up to ensure their own survival. The problem is, is these people have complex care needs that require care among organizations. And we're not measuring quality of care in that way. So if you have a homeless person that has mental health needs, that has physical health needs, that has uh, food needs, those are four or five different organizations. And those organizations don't talk. And that's why we're trying to mix the physical and social or the medical and social determinants together to be able to drive uh, and match resources with need. So I feel like one of the challenges there, at least from from your organization's perspective, would be bringing all these stakeholders and groups to the table to uh, share data and to do the, the analysis that you want to do. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some lessons you learned about how you're able to you know, connect to different... Well, first, can you tell us a little bit about the organizations that you are connecting and how you're able to... Um, um, uh, bring them to the table? Yes, and I'd like to frame it. The The word I think you used was incentive. You know, how are we working together? How are we able to do it? Well, it's all based on incentives. What are their incentives? So, ironically, uh, we work with the hospitals on their uninsured patients, and we work with managed care organizations on their insured patients. And the difference is the insurance companies want to decrease total cost. They have the incentive to decrease the total cost for insured patients. They're not incentivized to take care of the uninsured. But the hospitals, the hospitals have to uh, provide services for people uninsured, uh, and they want to decrease those costs, but they actually see the insured patients as a cash cow. So this gentleman I just described as Mr. Kincaid was a cash cow because he ultimately had Medicaid. And so actually one hospital kicked us out uh, for two months because they thought we were stealing their Medicaid patients. Right. To them, Mr. Kincaid coming frequently to the emergency room is something that generates revenue, right. generates profit for them. So exactly. uh, they have less incentive to reduce the frequency of his visits. Right. So lining up the incentives, like the Affordable Care Act having a disincentive of readmissions and seen as a negative quality indicant, uh, lining those incentives, getting the room full of people that feel like their needs are being taken care of is no different than we're, when we're in the patient room one-on-one -on -one, trying to figure out what's that pivot point for the patient. What is, what is the incentive for him, and how can we align that incentive or that goal that the patient has with our healthcare goals? Yeah, can we um, maybe unpack that a little bit? I, I, I'm very curious as to the specific services that PACES provides, as well as the uh, overall philosophy in, in how you direct that care. Uh, can you talk about exactly what, you know, if I was a patient uh, or a client of PACES, uh, what you'd be doing for um, a particular utilizer and how you do it? So two main pieces. One is that 
in a sense, one of our staff called it parenting. And I think that was a, a, a good uh, apt metaphor. The other piece is to help them in parenting to goal set, uh, to understand what their goals are and for us to try to negotiate those goals. But the first piece, which is parenting, many of these people have high ACE scores, adverse childhood experiences. And what that is, is I'd say it's almost a trust measure. And you'd be stupid to trust if you had been raped by a parent, abused by a family member. Uh, and these people have uh, very high scores indicating multiple abuse abuses, multiple different partners that have abused them. And so they have learned not to trust. And for the listener who, who may have been hearing about ACE scores for the first time, this is um, a pretty very interesting public health study that probably should be more in the, the, the popular literature, but uh, high ACE scores have been associated with high rates of uh, suicide, substance abuse, tobacco abuse, but also uh, chronic disease, obesity, diabetes. Hospitalization, uh, incarceration. Right. Um, so um, how, do you, how do you approach that issue of gaining trust? Well, that happens to be one of my biggest passions, which is how can we engage people more effectively? And so we do it in a kind of paradoxical way. If, if you, Dr. Kim, were my patient, I would say to you, uh, Dr. Kim, please don't trust me. I need you to tell me when you think I'm making a mistake. I may not even be making a mistake, but I need you to tell me. And do you think you can do that? And when you take this medicine, who are you going to blame if it doesn't work? And almost 100% of them will say, oh, me, of course. Uh, and I'll say, no, I want you to blame me. I want you to blame the medicine. It is not your fault. They think the reason why they remain ill, the reason why meds don't work, the reason why they're so unhappy or in pain is something they have done wrong. And this is just one more example. And so we try to unpack that negative experience for them with healthcare, which is they feel like blaming them. So ultimately, what, what are you um, as an organization following? What, what kind of outcomes would you like to see? Um, I think there's a lot of interest in, in cost, but are there other things that uh, you're hoping to achieve with, this, um, uh, with your work? Well, cost is obviously a, a thing that incentivizes most of the organizations at the table, but that's not enough. And in my work with the homeless, it's been very difficult to find an instrument sensitive enough to measure change among this very disadvantaged group. And we've been using the instrument called the DLA-20, or the Daily Living Activities 20 uh, item instrument. And it measures uh, daily living. It measures... Uh, your ability to uh, perform basic hygiene. Are you able to cook a meal? Are you able to feed yourself? Are you able to toilet yourself? Do you have any relationships? How are those relationships? Are you threatened in those relationships? Just basic measures of human function. And we've shown a, depending on which cohort we look at, if we look at the 75 people that we've had any touch on at all, not graduates, uh, we've influenced about that by 20%, which is a really remarkable number given our uh, limited exposure to the, the, to the patient. And to go back for a minute on the parenting piece, 
it's really simple work, kind of uh, painfully so, that I think any parent would recall the, the child doesn't want to go to the doctor because the doctor's mean. Why is the doctor mean? Because he gave me a shot that hurt my butt. So um, you then have to talk that through with the patient, what, what it is that makes you not like that doctor. And frequently, it's a misunderstanding. It's they came in for diabetes, but they had a cough this morning that was worrying them when they woke up because their dad died when they had a cough or something like that that you didn't even know about. And, and they said, well, the doctor clearly doesn't like me. And I said, well, why does the doctor not like you? Well, he didn't ask me about my cough. And I said, you know, I don't even know you had a cough. And he said, oh, yeah, this morning I coughed a little bit. And so I said, well, how might you communicate that with the doctor? And he said, well, I'd like to punch him. And I said, well, <laughs> what's another way you might communicate that? And can we practice that together? And it's that kind of, of uh, transaction that we want to shift so that they build self-efficacy in the, in the setting in primary care. Can I ask a little bit about uh, the, the revenue streams and funding that support uh, this venture? Like, how, how are you making your ends meet as a, as a nonprofit? Well, I, hoped, I thought this was a crowdsource uh, <laughs> attempt, and, and everybody was going to send their money in. Uh, we'll have a link on the website <laughs> for those who are interested in, in Dr. Bonsor. <laughs> no, um, so we, for the, for the patients that have no insurance, we've gotten county and city funding. For patients that are insured, we've gotten funding from the managed care organizations through contracts. And for uh, the uninsured and some insured patients through a uh, a state block grant called the 1115 waiver or a DISRIP program, we've also gotten some funding. But the majority of our funds to date have been grants. What makes the data analysis piece that you do unique? Because I know a lot of organizations who are shifting to an accountable care model or some sort of pay for performance or pay for quality model are doing their own population health metrics and analysis and, and hotspotting, uh, but I'm curious uh, what your group does um, differently. Well, uh, we do an overlap. So we're looking at an overlap analysis of multiple hospitals. Instead of most systems uh, look at within their system who are the super users. The problem is that almost half of the super users super use different resources. They may use, uh, in fact, in our sample of 53 patients, top users in one system, they actually use 36 other hospitals. Collective to, to one institution, it costs that institution $8.2 million for those 53 people, but across the system for those um, uh, 37 hospitals, it costs about $20.1 million. Oh, wow. So measuring at just one hospital really doesn't cut it. But on top of that, we then overlap with food bank resources, with Houston Recovery Center, which is a uh, center for chronic inebriates. We overlap with um, uh, the police and fire departments. They're, who are the, the frequent users of their system? Uh, incarcerated persons, uh, as well as the homeless management information system. 
uh, and they have some 800,000 visits a year uh, through all of the services for the homeless, uh, housing, um, day center, um, food, clothing, shelter, different kinds of resources. But we're not using that data until now to, to try to inform each of the other efforts so that you link medical with the housing resource to see if we can improve services. Typically, it's a case manager for the housing program that houses someone, in fact, someone that I've worked with for 10 years, just was housed yesterday, and uh, I've been to visit them every day for the last few days, because when would you think as a physician the patient would be at highest risk of having their mental illness have an exacerbation? It's during the transition, any big transition, but going from uh, homelessness to domicility is a huge uh, factor, and the voices or whatever the problems are get worse. But they can't get into the mental health system for three weeks to three months. I think one of the really unique things you're doing, I think, as you mentioned, if you're one of those 36 or 37 hospitals, you only have a specific lens on that patient, and you may not understand uh, the depth or complexity of where they're receiving their care and what other services they need. And I think connecting all these agencies is, uh, is, is a huge task. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, not, a lot of this, not a lot of incentive to, to do that work. For those primary care clinicians who are listening right now and, and may only interact with the uh, super, super user, uh, a small fraction of the amount um, or a small fraction of the frequency with which you uh, work with that population, what pearls or words of wisdom would you give if you were uh, a new clinician here is faced uh, in, in the clinic room with somebody like this? I, what I did when I started out years ago, I was at uh, 70 to 80 percent and did uh, volunteer work for the 20, 30 percent because I saw the system is broken for these vulnerable people and I wanted to make a difference. And when I was in the patient room, you, I had the same amount of time everyone else did. And it really was frustrating for me. And so I think acknowledging what you want to do, that many of us are parents, we have competing priorities. So to pick one small doable piece uh, and know that our system is badly broken and what we're doing now is not working. And so to do it louder or do it harder is not going to make the change. Expect to make mistakes, I think, is the most important thing. And I try to encourage our staff to make as many mistakes as you can, but not the same mistakes, and learn from those mistakes. And then I think at the end of the day, it's not some complex ethics formula. It's really people are people, and we all need connection. And even the super user patient, it's quite difficult that um, may do things that reject care. They're doing that because that's what they've learned. And if we can develop a reflective practice or counter-transference or a meaningful humanistic practice, we can grow ourselves as we learn to try to make the system better. As an organization, you're um, a little over two years old, am I correct? About three years old. Almost three years yeah. old. Uh, what are some of the early lessons that you've learned as a, as a group about uh, the work that you're doing? Huh. Making mistakes. <laughs> is the, that we're champions in making mistakes. Um, but, you know, a few 
innovative programs can make a huge impact. And we've found that the few things we're doing right replicate like a virus. And, um, and so I find that if we're sensitive to what the needs are of whoever it is in front of us, whether it's a hospital, a managed care, or a patient, that if we're clear about that and we make sure that person is getting their needs met or that the goals are aligned, we can achieve most anything. At this point, are you seeing any early data around the decrease in costs for uh, any of the uh, stakeholders? We've shown um, for the graduates in our program, uh, the cost was a reduction was nearly 83%. Oh, wow. But I have to say that if you look at it statistically, and we do these propensity scoring that would make anyone go to sleep, um, looking at that, the data is not that convincing. It's a regression to the mean. But what it is, is it's we're beginning to learn what works and for whom it works and how to begin to build a better system. And I think it's going to take time to get there. So although I can show you data that you know shows great uh, change in GAF, Global Assessment of Function, and these other measures, utilization, there's a significant regression to the mean, and we don't really understand the super user and the subgroups well enough. We don't really understand people that have complex care needs well. If you don't mind, I'd love to pivot a little bit in the conversation. You mentioned part of how your career started, so I'm wondering, um, uh, as we heard in your biography, you've done a lot of work with um, uh, you know, special populations, vulnerable populations. I'm wondering, how did um, this interest evolve? Where did it start from? Uh, could you tell us a little bit about, about that? Sure. Well, one kind of pivot point in, in my life trajectory was having the privilege of working with Mother Teresa. It, uh, uh, she showed me something painfully simple and and unachievable, which is to love one person at a time. And that's unachievable. You know, it's so difficult at times when you see someone very difficult to do a good job. And, um, and so that's been kind of my inspiration. But unlike her, I could not just do that. I had to try to look at the system because the system is so broken. So I mix my passion for patient care with trying to change the system. And also, you know, my own family trajectory. I had a, uh, someone in my family that struggled with mental illness, and it was the someone went way out of their way to help her at a difficult time that uh, actually they committed a felony, lying about her care so that she could stay in housing. And that made it possible for her to then get a long-term job, work for 32 years, and was an inspiration to me. When you started doing this work, you, you alluded a little bit to how you divided your time. Um, you know, you started a good number of organizations in your, in your career, and, and um, what recommendations would you have for early career clinicians or those who are also looking to really uh, create some reform in, in the healthcare system, uh, given how fragmented it is, uh, especially from the end of, um, from the standpoint of a primary care clinician that, that sits there at the front line. Well, what kind of uh, words of advice or recommendations do you have in terms of 
uh, how to create a space in your career to do these things? I think that's where the reflective practice is so important. Identify what you're passionate about and pick one tiny thing you can do each day, each week, each month that can move towards that. And maybe it's some tiny thing like it really bothers me that people can't get adequate transportation, that they get the whole uh, colonic cleansing before their colonoscopy and then the transportation doesn't get there in time and three times the guy I'm thinking of uh, doesn't get the procedure and yet he has a colon mass. So I'm going to put a little bit of my time uh, each week or each month or each day to try to make a difference in that, to try to educate myself just a little bit, to just pick one tiny thing. It's kind of like the Schweitzer Fellows Program. Pick one tiny thing, know you're going to mess up, but pick it and, and invest in it just a little bit each day. Just like all the docs listening, no doubt, were able to make it through <clears throat> medical school or get into medical school because they spend a little bit each day trying to get better. I'm also curious, when I talk to you know other early career clinicians, there's this general um, theme that there's a divide between community practice and academic practice, uh, especially with regards to the kind of rigor and expectation of scholarly production with the latter. But you've been involved in academia since very early in your career uh, as a professor at Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, so I'm curious how you see uh, your role as an academic and um, how it interfaces with your community health work. And, and more broadly, like, you know, what are your thoughts on um, the role of academic, academicians in, in caring for our community? Well, I think it's vital. I think uh, uh, Adolf Virchow uh, his axiom, where, where did he uh, look to make a difference where the dead lie thicker? Are they among the privileged or among the poor? And I think that was something that moved me. And when I actually, I've always had this passion, but moving up the, the promotion ladder was never of interest to me, sadly, until I met a, uh, one of the faculty that interviewed me that said, you know, I really didn't have a role at Baylor because I was interested in indigent patients and that's not academics. I was shocked because I didn't, I didn't see that kind of uh, bimodal distribution and um, decided that is absurd and that I was going to try to do both and I would do work. But as I learned moving along that to make a, a persuasive argument I needed to do that in a uh, research-based way, and I needed to build evidence-based guidelines. And in my work with the homeless and other, the Street Medicine Institute, my big passion has been you can't just do things. We have to see what the evidence is, and we have to make a difference. We have to make things better, and we can only do that if we're measuring them. So I think creating room for that in one's career is, is really vital. Dr. Buck, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks so much for, for having me. You've been listening to Review of Systems. You can find links to all of the articles and resources that we discussed on the show, including more information about the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study at our website, rospod.org. If you enjoyed the show, 
a quick reminder to please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher, and that makes it easier for others to find us. Please share us on social media. We're on Twitter at ROS Podcast and on Facebook at Review of Systems. You can also email us at contact at ROSPod.org, and we would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.